Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought, brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him for the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunities to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood 
so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flame, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chain and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Meet Jack Torrance. I'm outlining a new writing project. He's a writer looking for inspiration. Lots of ideas. No good ones. Meet Danny. He's a kid looking for a dad. There's hardly anybody to play with around here. What's up, Doc? Jack just can't finish his book. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but there's no way to make it economically feasible. Here's to five miserable months. But now, sometimes what we need the most is just around the corner. I'm your new foster father. I'd do anything. Climbing up on Salisbury Hill. I love it. I could see the city light. You guys all remember that nice, uh, you know, warm-hearted family film, Shining, right? Yeah, we're going to do a movie night this week. 
Uh, it's funny, there's actually like a whole slew of these uh, recut trailers uh, on YouTube and you can find like all these horror films that they, they turn into these feel-good family films. Uh, and it, it's funny because y y you could actually just take something like that and you know it's horrifying and you just pick the right clips and you add the right music and you put a little spin on it and something that you know is horrifying becomes pleasant and appealing. Uh, spin, it's powerful, it's a powerful tool that marketers, you know, advertisers, they are, you know, they're kings of spin. They're able to, you know, spin a product and make you look at it in just the right way that you think, I cannot live without this product. And, you know, you buy it and, you know, six months later it's in your basement or in the back of the closet because you're like, oh, actually I can live without this product, but they spin it in such a way that it seems irresistible. And of course, politicians are the best at spin and the worst at spin, uh, you know, especially if it's politician on the other side of the aisle, you know, they do something terrible, but they spin it in a way that it looks like they're actually the hero of the story and it's infuriating to see when they do it, when it's like on our side of the aisle and it's like, all right. But even then, even then we're, we're like uncomfortable with it. Like even if, if we're the beneficiaries of the spin, we're uncomfortable with it because none of us wants to be disingenuous. We want to be authentic and real people, right? We don't want to be hypocrites. And, and yet, I think there are times where there is a spin that's taking place, a spin that involves us, actually a spin that is, is twisting the way that we appear to ourselves and to the world that makes us look better than we are. And maybe not even to the world, maybe this, the world doesn't buy it, but a spin on our lives that we believe, that we see, and we think we're not doing so bad. And this spin, you know, what if this spin is going on and, and we're completely unaware of it? We're in this series called uh, Then Sings My Soul, and we've been going through these old hymns, these really great songs throughout history where Christians have been finding just such encouragement from these great hymns. And today we're looking at uh, one of the oldest hymns. It's called uh, be Thou My Vision. Anybody familiar with Be Thou My Vision? Is this a song that many of you are familiar with? Uh, I've been, you know, as we've been doing the series, I, I don't know who knows these songs and who doesn't, but Be Thou My Vision, it, we actually don't know much about the song itself. Uh, what we do know is it started as a, a, a poem, an old Irish poem, and like really, really old, like probably the 8th century, some date it as far back as like the 6th century, super, super old Irish poem that somewhere in the early uh, 20th century, a woman named Eleanor Hull translated it into English, and she gave us the lyrics to Be Thou My Vision, and then a few years later, it was set to music, and the rest is history. Now, it's one of the most popular hymns of all time, Be Thou My Vision, and I love this hymn because throughout the whole hymn, what it's kind of expressing is the supremacy of Jesus, that he is the best of the best in every category of life. I actually, when we teach our, our discipleship class on idolatry, we close the whole class with this hymn because nothing sums up just the supremacy of Christ better than this hymn, that Jesus is the best of the best in every single category of life. But, but there's a nuance to the hymn that makes it really, really remarkable. It's a subtlety that if, if we're not looking for it, we could miss. And it's in this subtlety that I want to I focus on today. Because as we go through the hymn, the hymn says, Be thou my vision, Lord of my heart. So there's this, this sense that God is the best possible vision that a person could have. That he should be Lord of my heart. There's nobody better than God himself to be my vision and the Lord of my heart. But the hymn isn't, Thou art my vision. It's, Be thou my vision. 
You get the difference. So for Eleanor Hull, who's writing out these words, she recognizes that there is no better vision for her life than God himself. And then she has to say, God, I want you to be my vision. But if God was already her vision, she wouldn't say, be thou my vision. She would say, thou art my vision, right? Like, I don't go to Lindsay and say, Lindsay, be thou my wife. I say, thou art my wife. Actually, I say neither of those things because that would sound ridiculous. But you, you get what I'm saying. Like, if God was already her vision, she wouldn't say, be thou my vision. So on the one hand, she knows God's the best vision. But at the other hand, on the other hand, God isn't currently her vision. And, and this song kind of reveals something called cognitive dissonance. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but cognitive dissonance is when there is a, a disconnect in our minds, that there's a disconnect between uh, you know, what we believe and what we do, that simultaneously we're holding two kind of mutually exclusive ideas in our heads, things that if you, if you really thought about it and you put them together, these don't, these don't really add up. And so on, on the one hand, we have Eleanor, and she has these, this cognitive belief. All right, I'm going to call it a cognitive belief. In her mind, she says, God is the best possible vision I can have for my life. On the other hand, she has to request that God becomes her vision because something else is functioning as her vision. So there's this cognitive belief that God is the best, but functionally, she is putting her faith in something else to be her vision in life. There's this, this disconnect going on inside of her mind. And this cognitive dissonance is not unique to Eleanor Hull. This is something we all deal with. You get that, right? We all have this, this gap, this disconnect between some of the things that we, we believe in our minds and how we live into those beliefs, between our, our cognitive beliefs and our, our functional beliefs. And this is an uncomfortable gap. When we see it, it's uncomfortable. And so the whole point of Be Thou My Vision is recognizing this gap, and she's saying, yes, I know you're the best, you're not currently my best, but I want you to be, right? She's trying to close the gap with the words of this hymn so that what she knows in her mind becomes how she lives out her life. And there's two ways in life that we could deal with this gap. We can either deal with it, we can actually close the gap. We can make changes in our lives so that our, our cognitive beliefs and our functional beliefs come into line. So what we believe in our minds is actually shaping how we function in the world. Or, and this one's probably more popular, we can cope with the gap. We can cope with it. And we can find a way of, of spinning the truth a little bit, spinning it in just the right way that if you look at it from the right angle, with the right lighting, and you, you score it with the right music behind, all of a sudden, oh, there's no gap anymore. And the discomfort that we'd feel if we saw that gap goes away because we, we found this way of coping with it, but, but the gap hasn't gone away. We're just looking at it with a different perspective that makes us feel more comfortable with the gap in our lives. And we're actually going to spend two weeks talking about how to close the gap, and next week, next week we're actually going to talk about how we deal with it. How do we actually close the gap? Today, I want to focus on our coping mechanisms, the spin moves that we make to help us get this, this appearance that the gap isn't so bad, so we can get comfortable with the gap. And I, I want to spend a whole Sunday talking about our, our coping mechanisms and these spin moves that we make, because the reality is, if we don't see this gap for what it is, and we don't experience the discomfort of this gap, we're not going to do anything about it. Right? Because if we, we see it and we're like, oh, that doesn't, 
you know, from, oh no, I don't see much of a gap at all. If we're comfortable with it, we're not going to do anything about it. And we're going to kind of persist on with a, a, a gap in our faith, this, this gap between what we say we believe, what we think we believe, and how we function in the world. And we're going to be looking at this, uh, this passage that Pastor Raquel read for us from Hebrews 11 going into chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the same passage for two weeks today, focusing on these spin moves. We're going to look at three common spin moves that we make to help us cope with this gap, to get more comfortable with this gap, and, and expose it, and, and pull out some countermeasures that we can take to make sure that we aren't spinning it in a way, that we, we see the gap for what it is, and we're uncomfortable with it. So in essence, what I want to do today is make you uncomfortable. Aren't you glad you came to church? Uh, I, uh, I, I remember uh, years ago coming, like leaving church one day, and my, my grandmother came to the same church, and she said, I hate when the pastor meddles. He always meddles. Uh, I'm going to meddle a little bit today uh, because I, I really do want us to be uncomfortable. I want us to see this gap for what it is. Not to shame us, not to be like heavy-handed, not to guilt you into anything, but I want us to see this gap for what it is so we're uncomfortable enough to do something about it. Say, you know what, I want, I want to make a change. So we're going to look at these three spin moves. The first spin move is that we, we, we take a new spin on faith. A new spin on faith. Uh, so this isn't working, Eric. It's back to you. Uh, so we have this new spin on faith where we actually redefine what we do and we kind of subtly, by the way, all of these spin moves that we make, we're not consciously doing it. It's kind of happening in a, in a subconscious level to help us feel more comfortable. But the, we, we redefine faith so that it, it kind of meets our needs a little bit better. So that from our vantage point, our faith seems stronger than it is. But if we go to Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, we get this really great definition of what faith is. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Hope is confidence. Now, I want to highlight this word confidence because in, in the Greek, the original Greek language, it uses this term hypostasis. I know you guys all speak Greek, so you know exactly what that means. Uh, but no, hypostasis, it actually speaks to the, the essence of something to uh, how it actually works out. And in fact, if you go back to Hebrews chapter one, the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, the same word is used in Hebrews uh, chapter one, verse three, where it says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This word being, it's that same Greek word hypostasis. And so when we get to the uh, chapter 11, and we see this word come up again about confidence, that faith is the confidence of what we hope for. It's this idea that it's, it's the, the material of it. In fact, in the King James Version, it translates that word. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. That faith is a substance. Now, for me, when I try to gauge my faith, I don't think of it as a substance usually. I think of it more in terms of sentiment. I think about all the things that I cognitively know in my mind and how I feel about those things. And what I do is I bring these things to the forefront and say, well, I have all this great theology and I've memorized scripture and, and I feel really passionately about these things and I have emotional experiences when I come in to worship and, and I, I put the, these things to the forefront and how I feel about it. Sentiment, I say, well, I have these really strong sentiments that must mean I have really strong faith. When we do that, it seems like the gap has been closed. But according to Scripture, faith is not sentiment. It's substance. That if we want to know 
what our faith is, looks like, we look to the outworking, how it's actually playing out, the substance, the material of our faith, the way it's working out in our lives. This is where James, the brother of Jesus in James chapter 2, he says, hey, you know what, you know, show me your faith by, you know, without deeds. I'll, I'll show you my faith, he says, by what I do. Because faith is a substance, it's not just a sentiment. And so the way that we, we counter this first spin is by measuring the substance of our faith, not the sentiment. And sentiment is good. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with like being passionate and having, but if we could be, have all the, the passion about our theological beliefs in the world, but if it's not working out in, in the functions, then this is actually where we are. This isn't where we are. And we should just recognize this gap and see, all right, maybe my faith isn't as strong as I've been giving myself credit for. And we fight this. The second spin is a new spin on the ideal, right? We, we put a little spin on what is the standard that we're going after? But here in Hebrews 11, the very next thing, after he gives us this definition, he says, this is what the ancients were commended for. So this substantial faith, this substance, is what the ancients were commended for. And as you heard Pastor Raquel read through, there's these great stories of women and men throughout history who their, their faith, the substance of it, bled out into the world into these really amazing, world-transforming things happening in the world. And he's saying, the author of Hebrews is saying, this is the standard, this is the ideal. Measure your faith against their faith. Now, I don't know about you, but when I assess my faith, I do not want to compare myself to Abraham or Moses or David or Daniel. Like, I, no, they're, they're in a category. No, I want to I compare myself to, you know, the average Christian or, you know, better yet, maybe even just like the average person who claims to be a Christian because then I, I feel much better about the status of my faith. Or, or we can even push it really far and say, you know, I'm going to compare my faith to the person who has no faith at all. And then we feel really good about our faith. And here the author of Hebrews is saying, don't, don't compare yourself to the average Christian. Compare yourself to the great. Hold up these, these great women and men of faith. That's the ideal. And what we do at times is we start to put these great women and men of faith in a category of their own and say, well, I can't compare myself to them. They, they're like superheroes, right? They have this superpower faith and, you know, it, comparing me to them is like comparing apples and oranges. And, and I get why that thought is appealing because it gets us off the hook, right? You know, I'm not going to compare myself to Captain America, Come on, the guy is a super soldier. Like, I, I'm not, what's the point of doing that? Like, we're in two different categories. But, but it betrays in us a, a, a false belief. It betrays that we believe on some level that what made Abraham great and Noah great and Moses and Daniel, all of these other great women and men throughout history, what made their faith so great is something about them. But that's not what made them great. And you look around, and, and we have people in, in this room that maybe you look to and you say, wow, they have remarkable faith. And, and you try not to compare yourself to them because you kind of put them in a category of their own. Well, no, they're, they're, they're different than me. But no, for all of these great women and men of faith, the, the thing that made them great is the God that they worship. And it turns out it's the same God that you worship. And it's the spirit of God in them. And it turns out you have the same spirit in you. And so we don't get to say, well, they're in one category and we're in our category and compare ourselves. And, and, you know, and it's appealing because if we do that, then we say, oh, well, you know, compared to the average, if you look at it, we spin it in just the right way, the gap's not so big. But then 
compare ourselves to them. It's like, actually, <laughs> when I look at what real faith looks like, the substance of faith demonstrated by these great women and men throughout history and even in the world today, there's a gap here. Sit in this gap, feel uncomfortable in this gap. There's a, a third spin that we uh, put on faith, and it's a new spin on what counts. You want to go to that next slide. A new spin on what counts, and I want to I hang here for a little bit. So faith, if it's real, if God is real and our faith in him is real, then it impacts every nook and cranny of our lives, right? It doesn't just impact, you know, Sunday mornings for an hour. It impacts all of life. And what I love about the hymn, Be Thou My Vision, is it talks about a whole variety of spheres of life and how God is the best of the best in every sphere of life, in every sphere of life. And there's four spheres in particular that are highlighted in this hymn. There's identity, authority, security, and joy. Identity, authority, security, and joy. And it turns out as we go to Hebrews 11, we see these great men and women of faith exemplifying what it looks like, what substantial faith looks like when God is your primary source of identity, your primary source of authority, your primary source of security, and your primary source of joy. And so we're going to look at these four categories and how it played out, and we're going to come back to why this is so important. So first, be thou my vision. This is the first stanza of be thou my vision. It says, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. All right, be thou my vision, Lord of my heart. Be thou my vision. This is, this is a statement about identity, like a vision statement, right? Companies, they have a vision statement. You guys probably work for a company that has a vision statement. That vision statement is saying, this is who we are, and this is why we are, and this is where we're going. It identifies like who we are and our purpose for being, and he's saying, be thou my vision. God, I want you to be my vision statement. I want you to be the one who I identify with and who I, I find my meaning and purpose from. And then it goes on, the second part of this stanza, it says, thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, my presence, my light. I love this. I love this because what I hear when I hear, read this is, God, God, the best thing about me is you. The best thing about being me is you in my life. Like that's, that's what's being said here. And nobody exemplified this better than Abraham. So in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. So Abraham, by faith, because God said to do it, he left his home. He left his family. He left his rootedness, his origins. And in the ancient world, like family was everything. Like family was your identity. Your, your ancestry, that is who you are. And God said, not anymore. I'm going to cut you off entirely. You're going to leave and you're going to go to a new land. You're going to be someone new, right? And nobody knows who Terah is. Do you guys know who Terah is? Some of you might. Terah is Abraham's dad. But why don't you know who he is? Because it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, practically speaking, it mattered in Abraham's life. There were things about his past that, like, impact, but it wasn't impacting who he was. His identity was no longer in the past. And so often, this is one of the, the key ways we try to find our identities. We look backwards, right? This is why Ancestry.com and, like, those DNA tests are, are so popular today. And, and for some, it's just for entertainment. But I think for so many, we're, we're going to these things because we're trying to find out, who am I? And maybe if I look deep enough into the past and my ancestors, then I can find out who I am. 
And God said, no, 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 I'm cutting you off from the past. That's not who you are anymore. But God gives him this awesome promise that he's going to be the father of many nations. So Abraham, who cares about my past? My identity is I'm going to be the father of many nations, right? Well, of course, until God asks him to sacrifice that as well. Because then it goes on to say that by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So you get this. There is a moment in Abraham's life where he is no longer the son of Terah, and he's not the father of Isaac. He let go, lets go of his past as a source of identity. He lets go of his future as a source of identity. And there's this moment in Abraham's life and it's not because God stripped these things away. It's because Abraham voluntarily offered them before God. Because Abraham functionally believed. He functionally, didn't just cognitively, he functionally believed that the best thing about being Abraham is God in Abraham's life. And what's the, be- the best thing about being you? Is God your primary source of identity? Are you looking to the past and, you know, your family history or whatever is going on behind you? Are you looking to the future and, you know, maybe you say, my identity, I don't know who I am yet. I'm going to find out who I am at the end of my life. And after I'm successful and I have successful kids and all of this, then I'll know who I was all along. Maybe that's what you're searching for, your identity, and you're looking to the past or the future. But do you believe that he really is the best possible vision that you have for your life? Can you say the best thing about me is being God? I actually want to even push it a little bit further because it's not just that it, like, on the, the list of like, your best qualities that God tops the charts. It's that God consumes the charts, right? If we really believe, if we really believe what we cognitively say we believe about God, then God would fill the chart. Like if somebody were to ask you, hey, what's the best thing about being you? What are some of your best qualities? Like it wouldn't just be like God is in my life. No, it would be like, oh, you know, I'm a child of God adopted into his family. Oh, number two, oh yeah, I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. Number three is that I was, I was chosen before the creation of the world. Somewhere around number four, I was redeemed. Oh, somewhere around number five, all my sins have been forgiven. Like you'd actually start listing off, maybe around like 50 or 60, you'd start to get to like some character traits or things about your past or accomplishments that you have in your life. But if we really believed what we say we believe about God, then we'd, we'd live into that identity. Do you? And maybe you do. Maybe like this is a spot in your life where you shine. And if so, my next question is, is he also your authority? Because the, the hymn, it continues in the second stanza. It says, be thou my wisdom. Let me go back to that. Yeah, Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. Be thou my wisdom. This is this idea that, that if God is our wisdom, Right? He's not just information, but he's our wisdom. He knows how to make decisions. He understands better than we ever could. His ways are higher and wiser than ours. So that if God says it, I'm going to do it. Hear this. If God says I'm going to do it, regardless if I understand why. Nobody exemplified this better than Noah. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And this is a familiar story. We all know it. Noah builds an ark flood comes, all of that. But think about the reality of this for just a moment, where there's this old man who's super old, and he spent probably decades building a boat in the middle of the desert, because God said a flood was going to come. 
Now, you and I, we have a category for a flood. We've seen flooding happen, uh, not on a global scale, but we've at least seen flooding in some capacity. We've seen pictures, videos, whatever. Noah doesn't even have a category for a flood. Like, this isn't something that the world has ever experienced. He cannot comprehend what is about to happen, but it doesn't matter because God is his authority. His ultimate authority, and it's not his own reason, certainly wasn't the crowds of people around him that were telling him, like, this is a stupid idea, like, just die already. Uh, he said, no, 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 this is, this is, God said it, I'm going to do it. God is my ultimate authority. Is he your ultimate authority? Or do you have to understand why in order to trust God? That when, you know, God says this is wrong, and you say, oh, I know he says it's wrong, but it doesn't seem like it's hurting anybody, so it can't be that bad. It's like, well, wait a second. See, God is our authority. When we're able to look at that apple and we're able to say, man, I know God said don't, but it looks really good. Like, it looks like it, it clearly is edible. It looks tasty. Wait, no, I don't need to understand. God said no, and he's my authority. Is he your authority? And, and maybe for you, yes. Maybe this is the area where you shine. And, and if that's true, well, what about your security? Because the next stanza of the hymn, it says, be thou my battle shield, sword for the fight, right? He's a shield and a sword. These are, are tools to defend ourselves and secure ourselves in this world. And uh, toward the end of Hebrews 11, this is when the, the writer is kind of getting, he's running out of space. He actually says he doesn't have enough time. So just rapid fire starts talking about these people. And he says, there are those who shut the mouths of lions and quench the fury of the flames and escape the edge of the sword and whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies because these people, all right, and, and you know, if you go back and you read the stories, you know that these people who you know, God did these miraculous things to come in and, and provide security. Each of them found themselves in a place that if God didn't show up, they were done for. They had no safety net. There was no plan B. If God didn't come, they were going to die. And God came and he miraculously saved them. But then the author of Hebrews goes on and says there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Hold on to that thought. Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment, and they were put to, the death by put to death by stoning and were sawed in two, and they were killed by the sword. So there are others, just as many if not more, who put themselves out there trusting in God for their sense of security with no safety net, no plan B, and God didn't miraculously save them, and yet... Their faith and their hope weren't in any way negatively impacted by that because their hope was in an even better resurrection. So God still came through. He was their source of security. And as Christians, we believe this is our hope, an even better resurrection. Not that God is going to come through and miraculously save us in this life, and he does sometimes, but that's not our hope. Our hope is in an eternity with full delights in the presence of God. Right? That's what we cognitively believe. But is that functionally how we're living? Is God your source of security? And if you want to know uh, where your source of security is, today it's probably not in like battle shields and swords. Uh, although, you know, maybe some of you were, you know, first online at the ammo stores like during COVID or whatever. Uh, and, you know, maybe some of you are, you know, been paranoid and like, you know, paralyzed in fear because of the pandemic and all of that. But I think for most of us, if we want to know where our security lies, follow the money. Follow the money. I told you I was going to make you uncomfortable. Uh, but uh, here's a question for you. Do you tithe? You don't have to answer that. Uh, uh, 
but you know, the tie that's kind of just been the, the standard throughout Judaism and into Christianity, that followers of Jesus, they, they offer back 10% of their income to care for the poor and needy and to uh, provide for ministry, to make sure that the gospel is being proclaimed to the edges of the world. And uh, that's kind of been the standard throughout Christian history. And uh, I don't know if that's the standard. Actually, I know it's not the standard. Uh, you know, it's, the, it's not the average, I should say. Uh, and why is that? Like, if I were to say, to, and by the way, please don't hear this as me trying to, like, guilt. We already collected the offering, so this isn't about you giving, all right? This is about you understanding what's going on in your heart. Because if you say, you know, I, I would start tomorrow, but what comes to your mind? Why can't you afford? What is it about the world that you set up that it requires 90, more than 90% of your income to establish you and your family? That you can't, well, it's probably because you're finding your security in something that is financially backed, all right? And I'm not bringing this up. Again, please hear my heart. I'm not bringing this up because I'm trying to manipulate you into giving. That's, that's not, you know, don't even, if you feel like that in any way, don't even give your money to, like, Beacon. Give it to, like, other ministries or something because I don't want it to be a manipulation tool. I want you to get to the heart. Where is your security? Is it found in God? And maybe for you it is. Maybe you do find your security in Christ. And then I would ask you, where is your joy? Because in the next stanza, it says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. And he goes on. He says, Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. This was Moses. Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses, all right, he gave up. He gave up the things that we spend most of our life going after to secure joy. And actually says he regarded disgrace. Disgrace. That's that thing that most of us spend our whole lives trying to avoid because we feel like if we're going to experience disgrace, there will be no joy. He embraced disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value. Because his joy was in Christ. That's like, his joy was truly in Christ. And so the things that we feel like, man, if I lost that, I couldn't be happy. Those are the things that Moses gave up. He says, no, my joy is in Christ. Is your, your joy in Christ? And here, here's the question to get you thinking about it. What is that one thing that if it was taken away, you feel like, I couldn't be happy. I'd get by, but I, would, I could not be happy if this was taken away. Or what is that, that one thing that when it gets messed with a little bit, there's this dark cloud that comes over your life and it just hangs out there until it gets fixed. Because that thing probably is your primary source of joy and God has been displaced. And maybe joy isn't your issue. Maybe you know, that's where you shine. But the, the question here is, not which one of these do you shine best in. The question is, do you shine in all of these? The third spin that we put on faith is we start to think of the, the ones that we function really well in, and we measure our faith by where we're, we're really doing well, and we spin it in such a way that it looks like our faith is really strong, and we kind of push those other ones that we're not so good at in the back, but it's kind of, you know, faith, it's like a chain, right? It's only as strong as the weakest link. So it doesn't matter if you're really strong with your joy, if your security is someplace else, then your faith is still weak, and this gap is great, and I want you to feel the discomfort of this gap. 
I do. Because, not, not because I want to shame you. I'm going to close here in just a minute. But not because I want to shame you, but I, I want you to be encouraged to close the gap. Right? There's no shame for where you are in your spiritual journey. Like, that's where you are. Like, that's fine. We're in this race and, we, you know, tomorrow's a new day. But I want you to feel the discomfort of this gap so you're motivated to say, I want to close the gap. And if you're in this place where you're feeling ashamed and you're feeling defeated right now rather than motivated, I want to close out with this, this encouragement that the author of Hebrews gives us, which is to fix your eyes on Jesus. So when you see this gap and you feel this, don't feel defeated, don't feel ashamed, fix your eyes on Jesus. He says, let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, so he starts it, and the perfecter, meaning he finishes of faith. Jesus, he's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He starts it, he finishes it, and you are not saved by the strength of your faith. You are saved by the object of your faith. All right, and so whether you have strong faith or you have weak faith, you are saved by the Jesus that you're putting your faith in. You understand that? If you have two passengers getting on a plane and one of them is terrified, they, they've never flown before and they have to pop pills just to, you know, get on the plane and they're freaking out the whole flight over and then you get another person getting onto the plane and they're a frequent flyer with millions of miles under their belt and they fly across the Atlantic. It doesn't matter whether they had strong faith or weak faith. It, it's the plane, the pilot that get them there. And so for you, when we talk about the strength of our faith, it's not so that you, you question your salvation or anything like that. It's so that you are, are able to actually address these things, knowing, trusting that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. And look at this. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So Jesus joyfully went to the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. And so if you look at this gap and all you feel is shame, just be reminded, Jesus joyfully went to the cross to bear that shame. And you see this gap and you feel uncomfortable, feel the discomfort, right? We want to feel the discomfort because we want to close it, but, but don't feel defeated in shame because Jesus took this shame. He went to the cross and he stretched his arms out to bridge yet another gap in our lives. And we all have these gaps and Jesus, he bore that shame for you. And so when you see this gap, see it as one more instance where the grace of God was lovingly poured out in your life. And see it as an opportunity for your faith to be strengthened.